124 retired flag officers sign an open letter bemoaning the state of the U.S. and its radical turn towards socialism and Marxism. Then, Space Force Commander Matthew Lohmeyer is removed from his post for self-publishing a book about Marxism in the military. It's 2021. Should the U.S. military be afraid of Karl Marx? I talk with retired Army officer and Havoc Journal writer Christopher Otero about the threat, or lack thereof, that Marx plays in today's military. We talked about a lot of stuff. We talked about critical race theory. We talked about its Marxist origins. Talked about the Constitution, the Civil War, Jim Crow, Civil Rights Movement. We talked about America. Now, I did not know Chris prior to this episode. I knew who he was because I read him all the time at Havoc Journal. He was my touchstone for all the arguments I didn't agree with. So when, when Chris agreed to come on the show and I introduced myself over email to him, I said, oh, I'm thrilled you're going to be on the show. I have liked easily over 15% of your writing, uh, which I thought was very funny. He was enough of a gentleman not to say whether he found that funny, but he was a complete gentleman. He is a man of the left. I'm a pre-Trump conservative. So we found things to agree on, but we found a lot of things to disagree on. And of course, not least importantly, we reminded ourselves that you can talk about you know, delicate political issues honestly and firmly and not give an inch, but you can do that when you're aware that we're all more than just our politics, that we are not the sum of our political convictions. It frees you up to have an honest debate and not, be, you know, not make your ideology your whole identity. Um, our discussion is not more important than our comic civic, common civic bond. And I think that was an important thread of this conversation too. Um, I think you guys are going to enjoy it. I, I asked Charlie Faint to get me a guest that I could play tennis with for this week's subject. And Chris was that guest. It was a pleasure. I think you're going to hear the best arguments that can be made from the left and the best arguments that can be made from the right, if I don't say so myself. So I think you're really going to enjoy it. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is The Weekly Havoc. Welcome to this week's episode of The Weekly Havoc, roundtable discussion of the week's events by the staff and writers at Havoc Journal. Except this week, where we are only going to have a, we're going to have a very, very small roundtable. It'll still be a roundtable discussion. It's just going to be two of us. But still, I guess the concept of roundtable discussion can still hold. I hope. We'll see. Anyway, Christopher Otero is a New York native who is an Army brat. He served 22 years in the Army as an armor and intelligence officer, spent almost all of his career in combat arms and special operations assignments before finishing off as the head of an ROTC program. Currently works for New York State, enjoys all the hobbies and things he never had time to do when he was in the service. Chris, thanks a million for being here. Hey, uh, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be on the show and, you know, it's really interesting, at least as far as the podcast is concerned, is that a lot of the people that I've been reading articles for for years, it's actually kind of tickles me to actually have a chance to actually see some of you all in the in the flesh. I know the feeling. I know. I know. It's really cool. It's a great second order effect of this whole thing is putting a face with a name. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
yeah, seeing the faces behind the madness. I'm like, oh, this makes more sense now. Yeah, I can kind of picture where why you were writing all that stuff. No, definitely, and um, and I really do appreciate you coming on this this week's uh, subject. To dive into it, obviously, this is a tricky one and a little inside baseball for everybody listening. So, as you all know, as I think I said last week, the way usually it works is I tell Charlie kind of my idea of what I want to talk about on a given week, and then he goes and finds the guests and usually rides shotgun. And <laughs> this one, he was like, uh, okay, I got to get you the right guy. And I was like, yeah, man, we, we need somebody I can, I can play tennis with here. And he's like, bitching. And he went out and uh, I was really glad he brought Chris in. I've been reading Chris since I started writing at Havoc Journal, which I think now was six years ago. Um, and obviously very, very off and on that I was writing for them. But Chris is in, in my mind, I don't know if Chris, you can verify how much you feel this has been the case for you. I feel like you've been one of the mainstays at Havoc Journal. Like I can always see your pieces pop. They seem like they're always popping up on the homepage. Is that how it feels? Does it feel like it's been a consistent part of your life or is that just my impression? It's really more of an impression. Uh, there was probably about two or three years where I was fairly active, but then, you know, I ended up uh, putting that aside in and about the time that I started to retire from the military because there was probably about a year or two where I was just very, very engaged with getting set up to get out and, you know, all the job hunts, all the other things. Plus, at the time, I was finishing up my second grad degree and, you know, there was a thesis that I was writing and it was just a lot of stuff on my plate. Plus, man, I had two young children. So I ended up taking a break for it for a while, but I knew a lot of my articles during that time frame were being recycled and replayed. So occasionally I'd get like this comment out of the blue going, how dare you actually ever say that? <laughs> and I'm like, and I'd be like, you know, hey, that I said that four years ago. You know, what's, what's all I, that about? I know it's it's that dangerous feedback loop that Charlie and Mike Warnock, the editors sometimes do now where right. when they recycle an article, cause it's now timely again. And and then you start getting feedback where it's like, you just sat down and wrote it. And you're like, yeah, that was years ago, man. I'm, I'm not in that headspace right now yeah, uh, exactly. to, to defend myself accordingly. Um, well, it's, it's great to have you on regardless. I really appreciate it. Another little inside baseball tip. Chris uh, has been a true gentleman because he, held on both through technical difficulties, which will not make it into this episode, and also a severe barbecue-related emergency on my part, which prevented me from getting here on time and starting the show on time. And Chris held out for that, which I I deeply appreciate. So, Chris, uh, you know, I know you said you were honored to be on here, but hopefully you feel the same way at the end. Uh, Certainly, I'm honored that you were able to be here for the initial part because we were off to a bumpy start. Yep. Well, hey, it just matters where we end up, doesn't it? It, it can only get better from here. That's right. Exactly. So let me let me spool through uh, my thought process as to how I got to the topic that we were going to talk about this week. So I, I think it was 10 days, maybe two weeks ago, uh, 124 retired flag officers from just about every branch of the service. I'm pretty sure every branch was included among them. Uh, they wrote an, an open letter bemoaning the state of the United States. Uh, There were a lot of specific complaints in there, which maybe we'll get to some or all of them or or not. But the general gist of it, uh, I think the main takeaway was that uh, with the, let's call it the welcoming or the socialization, no pun intended, of socialism and Marxism in the country, they felt was putting uh, our, and this is a direct quote, our historic way of life is at stake. 
And so that was, I think, the opening sentence. And then from there, they unspooled all of their logic as to how they got there. But that was the thesis statement that they were starting out with. That uh, obviously caused a lot of sternum drying among uh, Mill Twitter and a lot of other people, not in the military or on Twitter. Um, and so anyway, that was one kerfuffle. Then very shortly after, maybe three or four days after, we had a, a story that I think has gotten even more press coverage about Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Lohmeyer, who was a squadron commander for the 11th Space Warning Squadron at Buckley Air Force Base in Colorado. And he wrote a book. He self-published a book on Amazon called Irresistible Revolution, Marxism's Goal of Conquest and the Unmaking of the American Military. So as you can tell from the title and the subtitle, uh, clearly he also was worried about Marxism specifically in the military, which to be fair, I think the flag officers also referenced that in the military, but that wasn't the full thrust of what they were talking about. Uh, Matthew Lohmeyer's case is very much about Marxism in the military. For self-publishing that book, he was removed from his post. Um, so I think he's still in Space Force, but he is no longer a, a commander. And I think his future is still is in flux and up for debate. And not an irrelevant, uh, by the way, his book is also, I believe, still at number one on Amazon's best-selling books. So clearly the press hasn't hurt him too badly. But it did make me uh, come up with this week's subject, which is, should the U.S. military in 2021 be afraid of Karl Marx? Is this a justified threat? And Chris, you wrote an article about Lieutenant Colonel Lohmeyer, Matthew Lohmeyer. Uh, so I know you're and I know I sent you the link on the other one, so I know you're primed up uh, with opinions on it. What do you think? Is this cause? Is this justified or not? Well, a couple things to preface it. First of all, in regards to Colonel Lohmeyer, uh, I think a lot of the press reporting out there is that he's been relieved from command, which I think that is an important distinction to make, that he's been temporarily removed. And he may, in fact, actually get his command back after the DAIG investigation that's uh, going on. Uh, that rarely happens in my experience. I mean, once you get removed, you typically don't come back. But it had, but it's not unknown to happen. So I just think I want to be fair to Colonel Lohmeyer sure. about what the outcome may, in fact, be on that. Now, as far as all this, as far as Colonel Lohmeyer is concerned, I actually bought his book and I ended up reading it cover to cover. And you know, initially when I started to read it, I had a critique in mind about you know about what he was saying. But in the end, I realized that that critique was actually somewhat irrelevant because really the story is not so much a story about you know Marxism in the military, although I do think that we're going to get there in our conversation. In regards to Colonel Lamar, it's really about good order and discipline you know, in the force. I think that as I read the book with Colonel Lamar, he obviously has very opinionated and he obviously has you know, an axe to grind about diversity and other parts in the military. And God bless him for it. You know, that's an opinion that he can have. Certainly when I read the book, he is articulate and he does have a train of logic that he uses mm. to get to that point, you know, whether you agree with it or not. I mean, he did think it out and think it through. But the reality is, is that I keep going back to General Mattis's, you know, conversation that he had with the force back in 2017, which was that our apoliticality in the military, to paraphrase him, is really one of the most precious things in the organization. And, you know, he kind of admonished the force to hold the line until, 
you know, everybody kind of gets back to respecting each other and having conversations and dialogue with each other. And implicit in that admonition that he gave the military was that we don't take part in the culture wars, that we keep removed from it, and that, you know, especially in these perilous times that we have, where, you know, you have one side getting ready to knife the other, regardless of how you feel about that, it's doubly important that military officers, military service members really kind of guard against, you know, kind of getting involved in a culture war. And I think what happened with Colonel Lomar was that he had an opinion that was great. But at the end of the day, what he decided to do was instead of keep removed from that, he picked up a weapon and went to the front line of the culture war with what was a very controversial, no matter which way you cut it, you know, ideologically laden take on, you know, diversity training in the military, Marxism. There was a lot of loaded language there. And it really put the military, I think, kind of in a in a bind where either they would have to defend it or not defend it. And in the end, I think we saw what happened with it. So in regards to Colonel Lomar, I really think that's really a good order and discipline story, not so much a Marxism and the military story, but I'm sure we're going to get there. (laughs) So let me caveat all my comments by reminding everyone that I was just in a barbecue related emergency with all the second and third order effects that happened with barbecues. So if I'm not as articulate um, as I could be, that's my excuse. Um, but I also want to say that also means I'm open to being convinced out of my initial gut feeling on this. I did not read the book. Chris has done much more legwork on this than I have. So I'm going to defer to his judgment as to the quality of Lohmeyer's logic, his arguments, and where his, where his arguments were going. Because I think I'm – and I'm just going to assume I might be a little bit more open to Lohmeyer's arguments. I honestly felt like I didn't really need to read it because I'd probably read better articulated versions elsewhere and didn't need to hear thoughts that I – might generally right. sort of agreement agree with, but anyway. So if I misstate things, Chris, please by all means correct me and and, and set me straight because I don't want to, um, you know, paint with too broad a brush here. Let me double back to one thing you just said. So, is Marxism? So, what exactly is the culture war topic that Lohmeyer is breaching? Because to my way of thinking, I would think, I mean, attacking Marxism writ large doesn't seem to be an excessively controversial take. And I would say probably the more controversial take would be a pro-Marxist, hey, guys, why aren't we all following Karl Marx? What's controversial specifically? Why is it, Why is this? What exactly is the culture war issue that Lohmeyer stepped into the middle of? Okay. Hey, I'm glad you asked about that uh, because I'm going to say something that is going to be very surprising towards my group of friends because – I mean, it's no secret. Anybody who reads my stuff realizes that I have something of more of a left side of the equation as far as a bias. But at the end of the day, I don't think the discussion about Marxism in the military is a bad one to be had. I mean, I think there's actually some validity to it. And allow me to basically, you know, walk the dog on the logic trail about that. In regards to Lohmeyer, you know, he kind of goes to classic Marxism, and, you know, he has several chapters where he kind of writes out, you know, what his interpretation of Marxism is, how it came to be, some of the philosophical underpinnings of it. And I'm sure scholars of Marxism will have quibbles about this or that, but he does a fair enough job as it is for what's ultimately a very complex topic. You know, and if you really go deep into what the heart of Marxism is, we all kind of know it's the means of production, oppressed labor classes, bourgeoisie against proletariat. He touches on all of that. Where the culture, well, the cultural war issue comes into play is that 
his hypothesis is that, you know, that whole dialectic of, you know, bourgeoisie versus proletariat class struggle kind of broke down and lost credibility with the fall of the Soviet Union and all that. And obviously with China kind of going more towards kind of a anarcho-libertarianism kind of thing that they got going on with their own markets and everything like that. I think what he kind of said is that the diversity angles kind of comes a substitute for the class struggle, where all that language of, you know, there is an oppressor and an oppressed, mm-hmm. there's an exploited class mm-hmm. and not. He's kind of basically saying that the, you know, that, you know, modern day Marxist, neo-Marxist, uh, diversity kind of folks are using diversity as a substitute for that argument. And that ultimately, there's no difference between what the goal end state goals are between that group of people and the Marxists of yesteryear. And I think that that's where he kind of arrives at. That's a kind of a gross, you know, simplification, I think, of his argument that he's making, plus the other arguments that are out there. But I think that's probably good enough for a bumper sticker explanation. Sure. And then, so what, again, what that makes me think is then, Again, I mean, CRT, the, the critical race theory, which mm-hmm. I, I think the intellectual underpinnings of it, I, I think have been pretty clear uh, that it, it kind of came from that Derek Bell, Kimberly, Kimberly Crenshaw uh, legal, critical legal theory of the 1980s that got its origins in critical theory from the Frankfurt School of Marxism, um, Eric Fromm and all those kind of people. And that definitely posited that that these were Marxist frameworks. So I think I think the lineage of critical race theory is pretty well established, at least to my mind. I I, I I'm not sure. I, I hate to offer opinions when I'm not a hundred percent on what the counter argument is, but I don't see it, I don't see where anyone should be bashful if they are advocating critical race theory from admitting its Marxist roots because it. It, as you said, it does seem to adopt the exact same language as classical Marxism, just replacing race or, or class with race. So, for my money, it, it seems like that lineage is pretty solidified, at least intellectually and academically. So, then I wonder well, then why again does this become what makes that so culturally, so such a culture warrior move to deal with that if? You uh, is it because we're assuming that critical race theory is a one for one underpinning of the diversity, inclusion, equity stuff that the Biden administration is now pushing throughout the federal government, including the military? Is that the assumption that we're making that therefore makes Lohmeyer's attack on CRT actually an attack on diversity, inclusion, and equity? Well, what I think is that. You know, where the logic breaks down in my mind, as far as Lohmeyer's argument versus Marxism and all that, is that I think that he basically kind of tries to establish a one-for-one, you know, parallel between Marxism and critical race theory. And on top of that, I think like a lot of the arguments that go against it, is that he kind of wraps up political correctness, diversity, all those kind of trainings up under the rubric of Marxism. And I think that that is very reductive in nature. What I think is that all the critical race theory that is out there, and it's a huge, you know, it's a huge body of scholarship that's out there that has many contradictions, just like any other sociological theory does, that I think that there are different strains of it, some that are very Marxist, if you want to be dead honest about it, to some that are not really Marxist at all. 
And I think that he's painting with way too broad of a brush. And I think that even extends to the 124 flag officers that are out there is that they're painting with a very broad brush for something that has a lot of nuance, a lot of different you know, a lot of permutations to it. And I think that in some ways they're kind of starting off with what their critique is going to be and then fitting the data to go into their critique. Like you, I don't think that there's necessarily any harm in basic in talking about Marxism or even criticizing it. Although in my mind, there is some validity in some of the Marxist arguments that are out there that, you know, like anything else out there, it's not something that you can dismiss entirely. But I do think that, you know, in the case of Lohmeyer and his crowd, they're just painting with way too broad of a brush here. And, you know, when you read his book and you really get into it, he really, his argument is tight in places, but in other places it gets very expansive where he starts talking about secularism, atheism, and the negative. He starts talking about, you know, cancel culture and reverse discrimination. And he takes like a lot of these isolated incidences that he actually had in his experience and pretty much puts it all under the rubric of, look, Marxism is being pushed on the military and it's an existential threat to us and we're on the verge of apocalypse. And I'm just not sure I buy that argument. So let's go back to your – I want to pick that thread up in a minute because there's mm-hmm. – you're right. We're not going to be able to avoid getting into a discussion of Marxism, but I, I want to – Go back to what you'd said before about the good order and discipline aspect of this, Mm -hmm. Um, because I think initially that seems to be the front burner issue. Mm -hmm. So the problem that he that he runs into in in your mind, and I and I I don't want to use you as an avatar for other people. You're speaking only for yourself, obviously, but but um, because I think it's a it's an interesting argument, and I want to make sure I get it correctly. Is that where he really stepped in it? is that he chose to not just make a critique of Marxism, which might have been fine in a vacuum, but he's specifically making ties between Marxism and CRT. And I, I guess I'm still having problems seeing where that connects to the mil- – like CRT, I mean, you and I are both New Yorkers. Um, I, I was in the city. You, you were not. But, but as New Yorkers, I think we're both familiar with – probably all the stuff that happened in the late eighties and early nineties in New York. Um, I, I call it the Sharptonization of, of the city and, and when kind of the uh, so much kind of radical ideology, I remember going down to 14th street in New York city between seventh and eighth and used to see the uh, nation of Islam X-Men up there. And, or you see the black Israelites who'd be there at 42nd street or 14th street. And they'd be out there, literally on the street corners preaching CRT. I mean, it was those concepts. Everything's the oppressor or the oppressed. Uh, Qui bono, who benefits? And whoever benefits in a society, we have to reverse engineer and determine how they are the villain of that success. Um, Everything is a social construct. Uh, Nothing, everything is caused by the oppressors. Therefore, there are no immutable laws. There's no fixed science or fixed data points. Everything is a social construct and up for debate. And it has to be viewed through the oppressor's lens to deconstruct it and break it down. So that's kind of uh, – and, and and then also, not, not least of all, the monocausal, the, the fact that everything's monocausal. It all comes down to oppressor, oppressor. There's no individual agency in any of this. I think those pillars of classical Marxism that, in, that seem to uphold CRT as well, 
Um, I, I guess what I'm getting at is to me, CRT is the fringe and has been the fringe up until really about 10 minutes ago when it seems like there was a societal shift to start indoctrinating more of its concepts. Again, to your point, whether purely Marxist or whether kind of watered down Marxism, um, it, it, in any paradigm, it's still stuff that until very recently would have been considered incredibly fringe theories. And so I guess what takes me aback is the fact that um, the uh, Lohmeyer, 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 um yeah. is is getting dinged for that, that there's anything remotely controversial in this that could affect good order and discipline because I mean everything I just listed those those pillars of CRT don't just go against capitalism or democracy or Western liberal uh, thinking classical liberal thinking Th- those actually go against you know the civil rights movement I mean you're taking uh, you're you're replacing a lot of the forgiveness of the the civil rights movement and saying hey a person is not his ancestry individuals can make their own free choices starting now and and divorcing the individual from their race um, a, a lot of the, that a lot of this goes against that so I, I guess that's where I'm confused and I go this doesn't seem to me to be uber controversial stuff where am I going wrong what what, what do you think Okay, well, let me uh, let me deal with the Lohmeyer thing, then I'll unpackage the second part of it, is okay. that with Lohmeyer, you know, the issue so much isn't that the opinion, or it's not even really the the content of the opinion, in my, you know, in my, you know, in my estimation. It's really more the timing of it, and it's really the fact mm. that, you know, when you get down to it, is that right now we have a huge conversation going on about this very subject, and it is ideologically fiery and mm-hmm. there are passionate opinions on either side of it i mean i very recently had to watch you know a bunch of fox for a long period of time and it is on the hour every hour yeah. this is a statement that's sure. being made and if yep. you go over to cnn the counter critique of it right. is back and forth and there are people debating this on capitol hill right now and where I think that where Lohmeyer went wrong with it is that – and if you look at the timeline when he wrote the book, he admits in the book he started writing it after the election in November. Mm. And his uh, epilogue is dated like April 2nd or 3rd. I'd have to go back and check, but it was like first week of April. He wrote this at the time that this debate is happening mm. Mm. and interjected this in there with the imprinter of you know United States Army officer – Nice yeah. Air Force officer. Yep. And where I think it is that he put himself into the middle of a national debate that's highly contentious, that no matter how it ends, there's going to be sore feelings on either side. And that's not where the military needs to be in this thing. So, you know, Colonel That's Lohmeyer, an excellent point. Excellent Colonel Lohmeyer, thank I thank him for his service. I'm sure he's a good man. I mean, by all intents and purposes, by all accounts, he's supposed to be a phenomenal officer. But I think his judgment in this case was kind of poor, to be honest with you. The timing was poor. If I had been his friend, I would have said, you might not want to basically put this out there now because, you know, in my article that I wrote, I kind of you know, brought out this internet thing saying that there's internet saying that every day the internet picks one person to be a star and the goal is to never be that person. He essentially became that person and he did it willingly, poor timing. And I think that he's going to pay for it and, you know, do what you can afford. 
It, it's a great point. And I, I think, I, I think you and I would both agree. I know for me, uh, until I, I never, uh, you know, when I wrote at Havoc Journal prior to uh, getting out of the military, I, there were some times I, I wrote under my own name, but generally it was under a pseudonym. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly I never would have done this podcast if I was still there. Um, and I'm still getting used to the kind of disorienting freedom to say what I think in a public forum. Uh, so I couldn't agree more that there is an obligation in uniform and you're absolutely right. I, I think that's a great point that the timing of when certainly CRT, whether it just became popular 10 minutes ago or not, is certainly being debated hotly in so many facets of society. The timing is a huge factor in this. That said, so I, that it thought had crossed my mind. I don't want to act like I'm some rain man type genius and just, and pulling this out of the ether. I, I remembered seeing this back in the nineties and I went back and looked for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a movie in the, in 1995, it was a TV movie starring Glenn Close called serving in silence, mm. which was the story of, and I didn't see it. I just remember the trailer in the nineties. Um, but I think her name was Marguerite. It's a funny spelling, but I think it's Marguerite Kammermeyer. And okay. she was the uh, first uh, – let me see if I can get this right. She was Well, she was certainly one of the few openly gay or lesbian people in the U.S. military uh, while Don't Ask, Don't Tell was in effect. She retired from the military in 1997. So she had been kicked out, I think, in the early 90s for being a lesbian, but then – a district court in Washington ruled that her discharge was unconstitutional. She was returned to the military and serving in the military uh, again in the early nineties. And then this movie came out in 1994, a TV movie again, starring Glenn Close. So it wasn't a, uh, you know, some late at night Cinemax thing that nobody ever saw. It had press around it and she was still serving. And it was certainly, she was still serving while there was a highly contentious issue, gays in the military, um, and don't ask, don't tell was in full effect. And that debate was raging and she was, yeah, she was in the national guard. Uh, she wasn't on active duty for what that's worth. Uh, in the nineties being the national guard, I, I think is slightly different than it's been since G happened. But even so, uh, she was in the uniform and this was her story. What's the difference? Should that movie have been made? Is, is there no difference between the two? How do you feel about that? Well, I think the difference between the two was that, you know, was that movie, which I'm unfamiliar with, was it made by a serving officer in the military? Did it have official Department of Defense imprint, or was this something that came from Hollywood that, you know, kind of borrowed our name and put it out there on screen for dramatic effect? You know, I think that's the difference right there is that, you know, the official you, sanction. Yeah. yeah, with the official sanction, you know, and. There's a quote from an old, you know, from an old movie called Crimson Tide. I mean, it feels like yesterday for me, but for us, you know, we look at it, it was quite a while ago. <laughs> you know, I yeah. love when Gene Hackman looks at Denzel Washington and says, son, redefend democracy. We don't practice it. You know, and I think that some people kind of, that really rackles them that they can't handle that aspect of the military. But it's really, really true is that, you know, we serve the Republic while being somewhat one step removed from the Republic, if that makes sense, in some very kind of real ways. And I think that, you know, Colonel Lohmeyer, I think that tension that he had between his personal belief, 
that he felt that he needed to get out there. And I'm not going to belittle it. I mean, obviously, I have a differing opinion from him, which I'll kind of go to in a second. But, you know, I think that, you know, I'm not going to belittle it. He had definitely was passionate about it, was definitely articulate about it. But it really was an opinion that wasn't his to make at that particular time and frame. And I think that was the difference. You know, and then obviously he was making media appearances on podcasts. I saw him on Fox News the other day with the Chiron under his name. I think that that's where he went wrong at the end of the day. So if he had gone, if he, now you, you know more about this than I do. Did he get, did he go through DOD DOD enterprise? Did he get his book uh, looked at for clearance? he, He did not. No, he didn't, you know, and he actually makes that point in his interviews or, you know, in his interviews at his write-up was that he did consult with lawyers about it, but what he was kind of told was that he could, but he didn't have to, and then he, so he basically chose the explanation out there that I think suited him best, which was, let me get it out there, and, you know, and this might be, this is very speculative on my part, you know, Getting this book out there in the middle of this debate certainly is great for his earnings for it. And I think that he felt that he wanted this book to arrive at this point in the debate rather than six months, eight months, 12 months later, whenever the Pentagon book review would get done. And I think that he just decided to go for it. And no, he didn't. You know, in the, you know, I, I've heard this argument before because I've seen other service members run afoul of this. And, you know, they're saying, uh, you know, well, I could, but I didn't have to. My rule of thumb about it or my supposition about it is that if you're going to talk as a current military member about anything having to do with military policy, security, activities, operations, anything having to do with the military, do the book review. You know, I've seen a lot of very critical stuff about the military go through that process and arrive out there you know, out into the open. And imagine if he had actually done that and his book still came out, you know, it would have been unimpeachable in that regard, you know, of did you do it or did you not? I did it. Okay. Well then there you go. He chose not to. That's his top cover. Yeah. Yeah. So in your mind, that would have also given him top cover from all this fallout, Uh, not just publicly, but also through the military um, and, and through potentially losing his command. Yeah, you know, in some of the frothier, yeah, I mean, it would certainly give them, the, it would give them top cover on that. But in the frothier corners of the internet, I've seen some debate out there about whether it's telling the truth or not. Part of the book pro, book review process is that they would have established factually everything that occurred. About he makes a point in there about he was shown two videos that were very unflattering. They would have checked that fact, and he would have had top cover for all of that if it had mm-hmm. gone through the book review process. You know, people could say, well, that didn't happen to you. It would have been like, nope, it was verified. It was checked out, and I'm good to go. And he chose not to go there. And I'm not impugging anything. I mean, honestly, no, sure. I, be- I believe I believe everything you said in the book, you know, that that happened. You know, it's a weird military. Things happen. But that being said, you know, it would have shut down a lot of the debate and a lot of the sideshow that went along with it. Yeah, and then I, what I wonder is – so if he gets that top cover, where's the check on your first concern on the timing? Who's who's in the process and go, hey, bro, not right now. Keep the uniforms out of this. Um, right. where, where Where is that? Where's that sanity check? I don't know, to be honest with you. I mean, 
could they have taken a book review and said, you know what, don't publish this now, or could they put so many onerous restrictions on it that it would not have gotten published? I suppose they could have, but honestly, when you go through the book, there is nothing in that book that he wrote that is operationally sensitive, mm. that is security sensitive. It's all just a bunch of, you know, polemics about Jordan Richardson, the Illuminati and Freemasons. He had a great chapter in there where he kind of tied Marxism to that, which was kind of a lot of fun. Mm. Uh, some personal anecdotes about, you know, about things that actually happened. There was nothing in there that, in my mind, would have run afoul of a security review or a, you know, or a, or or anything else, to be honest with you. So when, when Space Force says that he's lost the trust and confidence of his subordinates and therefore, you know, his, his command is up for review, that conceivably could have happened whether or not he went through their book review process, right? Mm, theoretically, I guess. But I mean, if he put his book through the book review process and they wanted to relieve him for that, I would be on his side. Absolutely. I'd be on this podcast right now saying that that was a grand injustice because he did exactly what the rules said he was supposed to do, didn't put it out in the open, actually went through the process as it was supposed to happen. And if they wanted to basically find fault with him for that, that would have been short of criminal conduct. I mean, obviously, he wrote about something right. criminal happened in the book, but I mean, but that's not what happened here. I mean, if they tried to burn him for what he actually wrote going through the book review process, I'd be on his side. Because that would be an injustice in my mind. You know, something that you said earlier, I kind of wanted to get back to in mm -hmm. regards to, you know, Marxism and about the validity of some of the things that are out there. You know, there are, when you're on this side of the ideological fence line, there are a lot of weird contradictions that you run into all the time and quite frankly, leftists knife each other over some of the weirdest stuff. Let me tell you, I've been part of some debates where I'm like, I cannot believe you are actually talking about that. And some of the fringier frothier concepts of right fragility, uh, you know, white guilt. I mean, privilege, I kind of get the construct on that and I kind of buy it, but the idea of guilt or, you know, Fragility. I'm just not sure I necessarily buy those constructs. As a matter of fact, I think they're counterproductive towards a, you know, towards an argument. But one argument that I really do buy out there is that, depending on where you stand, the American experiment can look quite different depending on what your ancestral memory of it is or where you stand right now at this particular time. You know, I, as a person that grew up in a very peculiar kind of Americana, which if you're an army brat. You grew up in this really kind of weird mm -hmm. proto-U.S. that is more U.S. than U.S. can be, in my mind. And that's an entirely different subject, being an army brat. But I believe in the patriotism, the flag, you know, the city on the hill kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But when you have to be honest and go back to United States history, this city on the hill is built on a hill of bones, you know, it's built on the hill of bones of people that stood in its way. And in many cases, those bones are native bones because there were people that were here that we supplanted when we basically came to this country. Uh, it's built on a hispan, you know, a pile of bones that were Mexican because at one point, half this country, at least the landmass was, was Mexico. And we took it in a war that whether you believe it was a pretext, manifest destiny, there's a lot of debate to be had about that. But the historical fact that we took over half of our landmass from another country and planted a flag on it and said it's ours now, 
is a point. And then if you're African-American, I mean, you are the one ethnic group that was brought to this country involuntarily. Everybody else came here, you know, whether they were treated well when they got here or not is, you know, is another kind of story. But if you're African-American, you arrove here in bondage. That was your ticket to the United States. Uh, one of the inherent contradictions of the American Revolution was resolved in the Civil War, but then that basically created a whole bunch of contradictions that came afterwards with Reconstruction and Jim Crow and all the stuff that came after. We arrived at the Civil War, Civil Rights Act in 1964, I believe it was, mm-hmm. the Civil Rights Act, and that basically hosted another set of contradictions. The day before the Civil Rights you know, Act came out, Americans felt one way about it, and then – they didn't automatically start stop feeling that way the next day. Now there were some laws in place, but there was a reaction to that. The fact that the entire south of the country went from being a Democratic stronghold to a Republican stronghold overnight, the whole political realignment, was definitely a counter-reaction to that. And so the point being is that if you're one of these groups of people out there, you know, you can look up and see the city on the hill and you can glorify it and you can, you know, be like, hey, I kind of want to live there. But you can't ignore that pile of bones that are underneath it and what effect that has today. And I think that, you know, a lot of this argument about diversity, about where we go from here, even some of the stuff that happened past last summer, is all about those contradictions. And if you take the rule of three principle of revolutions, that every revolution has a revolution, a counter-revolution, and then a third revolution that results, that kind of resolves the contradictions of the first two. That's kind of what's going on right now. And I think that, you know, this discussion about diversity, about critical race theory, I think that they have valuable constru- valuable contributions to make. Uh, I think that some of it is wrong, in my opinion. Some of that is destructive. Some of it's not helpful. But also, so is the opposite side of the equation, which is, you know, kind of ignoring that, yeah, this country did have some problems in its past, problems that persist to this day. And rather than try to, you know, create this whole narrative that, you know, we're great, we dealt with it with the CRA, and now we're good, and it's the land of a golden opportunity for everybody, and don't pay attention to the bones, I just don't think it's helpful. And I think that that's where, you know, depending on what your perspective is, this argument is either a great argument or it's a poor argument. And that's where I think that that's what a lot of the tension that's going on in the country is right now. Chris, I owe you a huge favor because you, you, you teed up so many issues that I, I longed to play tennis with somebody over these. Sure. And, uh, and it, it, these are, these are great points and you've made them articulately and clearly. And, um, and I think summed up, uh, I think a lot of things that, that I absolutely take your point. I think a lot of people can get confused over. So, um, not saying this about you. I'm going to, I'm I'm going to say it about people that I have in my mind that I won't (laughs) mention publicly, but I I think one of, one of my bugaboos with many people that make similar arguments, not you, because you've had an incredibly experienced life. And that to me means an awful lot. And, and I'll get to the core of what you were talking about in a second, but to many people that make these arguments, um, what I find is that if you know the history of only one country, you really don't know the history of any country. And a lot of people that are critical of America have a very hard time articulating who's done better. And that to me gets to the core of the city on the hill. I 
100% agree with everything you just said about, yes, America was built on a pile of bones. The catch is, so was everybody else. Mm -hmm. The sins of America you can find in every country, in every nation state on this planet. What makes America unique, I would offer, is the virtues of America that very few, if any, have been able to duplicate and certainly not in the size and scope that America has. And that to me is the great divide that we see in this country when we talk about people that love America and people that, you know, are, are uh, progressive and trying to improve America. It seems to be that's the divide that certain people want to focus on the sins. Other people want to focus on the ideals and on the virtues of America. And the right answer is that you can be all-inclusive. We can talk about the sins of America, and that's absolutely 100% fair game. The problem is we also need to give equal airtime to the virtues of America because that is really what makes America America. The sins of America are just ubiquitous in human history. Slavery, conquering peoples, uh, the the resource grab, uh, experiments with imperialism when you get a little bit of power. What's interesting about America, and I think what's worth reminding ourselves about America, is that America is the great experiment. It always amuses me when people usually that are progressives, and I say that because I, I think the label is apt. I think a lot of our, uh, I'm going to digress for one second, but it's been my belief that our politics are essentially like an army AAR. You have your sustains and your improves. And progressives are constantly worried about how to improve things. Conservatives are constantly worried about sustaining what is good. And you need both of those. That's why it's so important, in my opinion, that both parties be strong, specific, and hold to their to that mission because you need both of those for America to continue to be, in my opinion, the best country in the world. But one of the one of the problems that I find on the progressive side is that frequently the ideals get confused with the reality. America, what was so unique about America is that we strove for ideals that very few had ever considered before. Uh, for one, having a, a negatively a, a constitution written with negative rights. So instead of saying, this is what you're allowed to do, our whole constitution was written saying, hey, this is what government is not allowed to do. Mm-hmm. Incredibly unique. The idea that the, the the first constitution that really sanctioned the power of the individual as opposed to the group, whether it be a racial group, a religious group, uh, a aristocracy, what a proletariat, um, those kind of ideas, uh, ideals, are a high bar to pass. And one of the beauties of America, and it's my privilege to be able to sit here in 2021 with the benefit of hindsight and look back at the history of America and say this, um, at the time it would not have been as easy to make this case, is that we can look back and go, you know, we've been, we have been probably among the most self-flagellating people to ever walk the face of this earth. We have consistently examined our sins and then gone to, to the extra step of rectifying them. It's a little trite and glib to say that we fought the Civil War to get rid of slavery, but it's worth saying most cases of slavery globally were stopped by slave rebellions. Mm-hmm. Ours was not. Ours was stopped by the federal government declaring war on its own citizens in the name of slaves, and then at the cost of a million overall lives, ending that war. And then, to your point, absolutely. Then 
Andrew Johnson cuts his deal and Jim Crow laws spring up. And we have that horror for another hundred years, which was equally outrageous in many respects. But we've also been very self-flagellating about identifying those and justly trying to correct them. And as Martin Luther King famously said, the idea of this country, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, because I'm not Martin Luther King, but the idea of this country was that promissory note that America wrote this promissory note to its citizens saying, hey, here's our ideals. All Martin Luther King was asking for was for us to live up to our deal, our ideals. Mm-hmm. What's interesting and to me disturbing about CRT now is CRT and its adherents are not asking us to live up to our American ideals and put our money where our mouth is. It's rejecting those ideals out of hand and saying, hey, that's a bunch of lies. Here's what we really want. We want redistributive justice. We want you know to flip the oppressor oppressed classes. Uh, no end in sight. Apparently, no no uh, uh, ability for compassion, individuality. Everything has to be boiled down to race, and no end in sight to atonement. There's no path for atonement. There's only more flagellation, but no real salvation which is a very, very 180-degree different point of view from the civil rights movement, which, to be clear, not only put an official end to Jim Crow, but then has progressed the whole country to a point where now, um, you know, you mentioned, uh, let's say for the purposes of argument, black people in the United States that came here in chains now have better lives. But also a lot of black people that are in the United States were not, and I'm saying black people for a reason, they were not African-Americans. They were Caribbean-Americans, or they came from other places where ancestrally, yes, many of them were slaves, not of us, but of the British, of the Spanish, of the Portuguese, what have you. But now just to look at someone, see that they're black doesn't necessarily mean that their ancestors were slaves here, and certainly not that they were slaves under America. The point being that That's a beautiful thing to see that we have moved past that in so many respects. And to me, it strikes me that this is a manifestation of Eric Hoffer's famous quote, you know, every great cause starts at a movement, starts as a movement, becomes a business, and ultimately degenerates into a racket. I think we're at the racket phase. I think there was a great cause. It started a movement. And I think once, and I'm very biased on this point, I think Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson in the late 80s and early 90s did an immense amount of damage, certainly to corporate America, but especially to the black community, because what they incentivized was depression. They incentivized resentment. They incentivized the very mechanisms that have allowed that that every other racial and ethnic class has moved in one generation from poverty to middle class, except the black community in many respects. The black community is We've got a lot more middle class and even upper class members than it ever has before in this country. And those numbers have moved, which is outstanding. But the reason why it has been so slow to move has been because there's been a huge incentive placed on making sure that angry people continue to exist in that community and vote a certain way and donate money a certain way. And that has been the racket part of this. And I, I won't, I, I always have to. Maybe at some point when we do a three-hour podcast, I'll get into personal stuff that I've had that where I've seen this. Um, but to me, that's what grinds my gears, and I think I, I think there has to be a, there has to be a mature adult-like way that we can discuss the sins of America while also trumpeting the virtues and 
and acknowledging that where we are right now is literally the best place for any individual of any race, of any sex, of any sexual orientation. You could not ask for a better place to live. I'll, I'll say, and I know I'm, I'm ranting and raving, and I appreciate you bearing with me on this. I, um, but as I said, you you hit all my uh, my hot buttons, so I just want to make sure I, I addressed all the points that I could think of. Um, it, it struck me multiple times when I would return uh, from Africa. I, I did a total of 21 months in various African uh, countries, and it always struck me returning to the United States. The um, the difference between the two and nowhere does it strike me more than in Africa with African Americans um, who no person in Africa ever saw as black um, that they simply saw as American because in Africa, obviously they don't really see black and white necessarily they do, but really what you see is you see tribe. Well, you're Bantu, well, you're Fulani, well, you're Habergadir, well, you're, you know, whatever. And uh, Dinka, you know, you, you, that's the breakdown. So when they look at a black American, they just go, oh, yeah, well, that's, that's an American. I mean, there's, you know, I can't determine his tribe from there. So to me, when I look at this, I go, you know, I don't see the, the I don't see how clinging to these racial identities, and this is where I do agree with Marx, I think race is very much a social construct. And I think racism needs race in order to exist. I think the more we can get rid of race as a subject of conversation, the more you see racism go away because racism needs that anchor. But to me, I think that's the state that we're in. Uh, and now I'm done getting on my soapbox. Please respond, pick apart anything I said. As okay. You said. A, a couple of things. Um, you know, just a little background on me. I uh, kind of grew up a Republican, you know, a liberal Republican, to be honest with you, but you know, really more right-leaning than anything else. And I think, you know, being a child of the military in the 80s meant that you kind of worshipped at the altar of Reagan because that was kind of just that era of time. That's sure. all you heard about. Sure. Uh, so becoming kind of a left con- convert like I have is a really kind of weird place to be because some of that old programming is still there. And programming, that's a bad word for it. Some of the old belief system is still there. And I actually hold to to this day. So there's always a tension with kind of like my newfound you mm. know, tribe out there of folks. You know, And part of what you said captured my critique of the left from the inside, which is that they're too busy trying to be pure or trying to self-police or tone police with each other to truly ever be effective, you know, in some ways. I mean, they ultimately self-defeat themselves, you know, in some very kind of sad ways when you think about the people that get hurt in the fallout. And so that's kind of my critique of the left from the inside. But one of the strongest critiques I have of that goes to something that you just said, you know, the whole idea of guilt and kowtowing and the fact that you have to continue to atone for all the past sins out there. I think that is not very constructive because, hey, look, you know, I believe in a lot of the things that they talk about. I think that they're societally useful. I think society needs to progress. And I think some of these progressive ideas are a positive thing for us to move forward. But if you expect an entire segment of the population to essentially bow down 
on the deck of the battleship during the surrender society, surrender ceremony, that's not going to happen, my friend. You're not going to win any converts that way. You're not going to convince anybody. As a matter of fact, what you do is you're going to radicalize the other side of the equation, which is already doing an awesome job radicalizing themselves. Exactly. To be to be yeah. quite honest with you, yeah. they don't need any help. <laughs> to basically, to basically yeah. get there already. I mean, we just had four years of Make America Great Again, of which, you know, a lot of that was like, oh my God, these guys are working themselves up. Let's not contribute to that. And I think that the left does a very good job of contributing to that with some of this language and tone policing. And frankly, when I see it, you know, on my side of the divide, I tell people, I'm like, look, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to get anybody that way. You know, look, I thought that the social disorder that happened during the summer, during last summer, in some ways was a good thing. It was kind of a reckoning that kind of needed to happen. I mean, certainly the initiating event with, uh, with you know, George the man Floyd. getting George Floyd yeah. getting knelt on the neck. I think that was a valid critique, and people needed to get in the street for that kind of thing. But then when you had all the burning and looting, you saw this kind of this weird pernicious thing where they were like, I care more about lives and property crime that you saw from that divide. And I was like – Hey, that's an awesome thing to say. It's not your property being burned. Right. You know, you just radicalize another set of a person against you, and maybe we ought not be applaud- applauding that. So, right. you know, kind of the anger that you had out there about, hey, look, you know, I why are we kowtowing? Why are we, you know, kneeling? When are we going to have to stop atoning? I actually kind of agree with you. I think that that's not a constructive thing to happen. You know that's going to ever move the move the ball to where I think it needs to be, but one thing that I think that you said that needs to be kind of kind of mentioned is that your opinion and your assessment of where we stand as a country with a city on the hill and with you know hey this is the best time to be an American and all that is not universally shared by everybody in the country and there are oh, some valid yeah. there are some valid critiques out there of that because once again you know to my whole analogy about you know the hill of bones depending on where you stand on that hill this all looks very 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 different and i think for some of the people out there you know, just you know, to go back to the example of black folk. They have an ancestral memory of what happened in the Civil War when, right the year after the Civil War, they had ninety percent voter participation. They had power in their communities, and ten years later, when Johnson cut his deal, that was all taken away, and voter participation in their communities went down to zero. Sure. So sure. when they look at all these laws being passed right now about ID laws and about all this, you know, hey, we need to keep the vote safe even though we can't really find the voter fraud that's out there, but darn it, why do you basically want the vote to be unsecure? They don't have to dig far back in the ancestral memory to go, hey, we've seen this song and dance before. You know, the, the, you know, you know, the dance, the the, the dance changes, the conversation changes, the language and vernacular of the time changes, but this kind of feels like what happened before. And hence that's why some of it, you know, this is where I'm going to get in my soapbox for a second. Please, yeah, go for it. You know, and kind of say something that I think a lot of people, particularly on the right side, would disagree with, is that as a former officer in the military, I hold the Constitution in reverence. I think it was an amazing document. Uh, it was forward-leaning, and I think you were exactly right that it was built in such a way that was pretty unique for its time and that – you know, the negative rights, you know, the construction of it was fairly brilliant. But at the end of the day, it was a document of compromises of people sitting at the table. 
And in the end, those compromises resulted in the Civil War. I mean, that's what the Civil War was about, was kind of the resolution of all those contradictions between what the document was written, how it was basically implemented. And then I think in the Civil War, there are a lot of reasons why the Civil War was fought. But I mean, if you want to go with the state's right argument, you know, it was that contradiction between federalism and states that kind of brought it all to a head. Of course, then what was the right that was under question? It was slavery. But sure, so it all sure. comes back to that in the end. But so you see where the contradiction argument came into the place. There is a passage that I think is one of the most important passages ever written in a civic sense is that I'm a huge General Grant fan. Mm-hmm. And I believe that every American should really spend time looking at the memoirs of Grant because I think that book is a brilliant book because, you know, as he talks about the various campaigns that he went on in the course of the Civil War, much like Marcus Aurelius did with Meditations, where he kept it, which was his campaign journal when he's fighting the Germans back in, you know, back in Roman times, he put a lot of his thoughts on society, on, on civics into that book. And he kind of wrote about the Civil War and about the Constitution. He was like, hey, look, uh, the Constitution was amazing, and I'm paraphrasing here. Please, by all means, during the notes, I can send you. The exact, <laughs> I'll, I'll send you the yeah. exact passage. Yeah, yeah. But, but to paraphrase it, he essentially said, hey, look, the Constitution was written 100 years ago during the age of sale for a small-scale agrarian commercial republic, and now we are a much different nation with steamships and mm-hmm. telegraphs that we could communicate, things that used to take three months to happen now happen in a single, in a single transmission. We have all these modern you know, machinery. And could it be that some of, the, some of the suppositions and some of the compromises that were there inherent in the initial document are no longer the right cause for the United States? I think that I liken the Constitution of the United States much like hardware and operating system. The hardware obviously is the geography of the country and the people of the country. The Constitution is the operating system, mm-hmm. the OS. And then laws, uh, judicial opinions are your patches that go into the operating system, you know, to kind of update it. You know, it's like your antivirus stuff, all that goes into it. OSs don't last forever. Eventually, OSs have to either be updated or they have to be replaced. And when it comes to the Constitution of the United States, and please don't put the words in my mouth, I am not advocating any sort of sedition <laughs> or anything like that towards the Constitution uh, of the United States, but I don't necessarily regard it as infallible of a document, as some might say. I mean, there are things in the Constitution that, quite frankly, don't fit into this modern age. Sure. You know, of 300 million people in a secular republic that's a continental power, I think that if the founding fathers were able to come from the past to now, would they write the document in the same way for the same country that we are now? Or would they write a different document? One thing that, you know, kind of really strikes me as kind of a really weird thing, and let's not even get into the Electoral College argument, but we have similar representation for states of, you know, 500,000 that we have for states that are 50 million people. And I think that they would have had a lot to say about that kind of, that kind of, you know, that kind of structure, you know, that may have not been exactly how they kind of envisioned it would have been if they had to rewrite that document. I'm kind of going really far afield here. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, I think, I, I, I don't know if, the, I think the numbers would have boggled their minds, but I think certainly the construct that, hey, two senators for everybody, 
but then proportional representation based off the mm-hmm. size of your state on, in the House. I don't know. I, th- I think there's a certain logic to that. I would I would also though throw out – so the, I, your whole point about the Constitution though I think is unassailable except for two key parts of it. The, die, the founders did have the wisdom and foresight to allow us to amend the Constitution, however. And I think a lot of the time, our, you know, when we hear, when we see the heated debates about Supreme Court justices, when we get into the laws and the interpretations of the laws, the judicial opinions, oh, we need to pack the court then to get people on our side. The big thing that, that we come back to is, hey, man, the founders already had it. They had a fix for this. Find the strength in numbers, find the, um, you know, dig deep into your well of logic and reason and convince enough people and pass a goddamn amendment. The important things in this country we have done, we have done by amendment. The Constitution, the founders were not naive enough to think that they had written a document that would address every single conceivable variable that we would come up with 200 some odd years later. But they did say, well, here's the process to address those things. Get an amendment done. Stop trying to just pack the courts or I'm not trying to use a Fox News line by raising a concern about packing the courts. But let's take the emphasis off the judicial branch. Let's put it back on Congress and say, pass a goddamn amendment then. If you think you can, if you think there's something worthwhile, it officially ended slavery. It gave women the right to vote. We could do a lot of things with amendments. If your cause is just Put it in writing and muster your political resources and get an amendment passed. And then, because I'm not a big fan of the living constitution, I don't agree with it. I don't believe in it one bit. But that doesn't mean the constitution is a quote unquote dead document either. It's as alive as you want to make it. Add an amendment. And the second piece to that is, of course, the 10th amendment, which is everybody's get out of jail free card. That's right. The Supreme Court didn't, I mean, the Supreme Court, the, the constitution. Emanations and penumbras aside, doesn't address abortion. It doesn't address gay marriage. It just doesn't. It's not in there. These are not things. It doesn't talk about the internet. You know what does count cover all that though? The Tenth Amendment. Fight it out state by state. Either write an amendment and put it in the Constitution, or go to the Tenth Amendment and say, "Great, we will do hand to hand combat and get this passed in each state legislature for all fifty states." That's why we put the Tenth Amendment in there, is because all the rights. I mean, for those listening, I know Chris, you know this. I'm not trying to insult you, but to, to all the uh, to anybody that doesn't isn't totally tracking what this is, the Tenth Amendment states that to all any other right. Any other issue that comes up that's not covered in the Constitution belongs to the individual states to adjudicate. And if you don't like that, then put an amendment in the Constitution and the federal government will handle that as well. But to me, those are the two big fixes that the Constitution does have. And before we throw the baby out with the bathwater, that's all I would submit might be worth doing. I'll let you get the last word, Chris. And so feel free to make all counter accusations and counter arguments you want. I will not respond. Don, has been a great conversation. Uh, <laughs> Don, the, at the end of the day, though, is that I think that the Constitution, a lot of the premise that it was founded on almost immediately was thrown out. I mean, the fact that, you know, the idea that of two parties was not, you know, anything that the founding fathers were very happy about. The fact that, you know, the Electoral College was supposed to be free electors where, you know, if a part of Virginia wanted to vote for one person 
and another part of it wanted to vote for another, then those electors could were free to do that. But now with winner takes all slates, that was something that, you know, in 1830, I think one of the last founding fathers explicitly wrote about saying that is a perversion of what we were trying to do. And of course, in this modern era where all politics now are national politics, you can't get amendments passed. You just can't. And, you know, and I think that, you know, and both sides are guilty of it to a degree. I mean, obviously, me being on the other side of the equation, I have some thoughts and opinions about who's more to blame for it. But both sides do it, and no one wants to compromise, you know, and it's no one wants to actually have that dialogue anymore. And eventually, this is going to come to a head. We're going to run into a crisis that's going to bring us to our knees. For a moment there, I thought, you know, coronavirus was going to be the thing that was going to bring us to our knees that would cause everybody to have to come together. But unfortunately, you know, how it kind of played out, you know, just created more divisions and hell, who ever imagined that a pandemic would have become political, but, you know, but at the end of the day, I mean, that was our moment to have our independence day, you know, Bill Pullman sitting on, you know, up there with a flag giving his, you know, this is our independence day speech and we blew it because (laughs) we suck, you know, and that's what happened at the end. But, you know, to kind of wrap it up with Lormeyer and to wrap it up with Marxism in the military, you know, kind of our topic here is that. <laughs> Thanks for circling back to that because I certainly wasn't. So, yeah, good. Yeah, Thank yeah. Thank you for Lohmeyer, doing that, your due diligence on that. Yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, Lohmeyer is probably a great guy. We'd all probably enjoy a beer with him. He got ahead of himself and he interjected himself into a conversation that, you know, really wasn't his writ to do. And I think, you know, obviously – he may or may not get removed from command permanently for that, but that was based off a set of decisions he made, and I don't think he's a victim there. And I think ultimately, in the end, it's going to come back. You know, do what you can afford is what they always tell us in the military, and the military had something to say about it. And as regards to the Marxism in the military, look, I'm not a big fan of Marxism either. When you get right down to it, you know, some of the examples that Lomar used were good examples, some of them weren't. You know, but at the end of the day. The idea that we should have more empathy, that we should sometimes consider the viewpoints of others, and the fact that some of these truths that we hold dear may look very different depending on where on that hill you actually stand, I think are all good things. You know, and when it comes to diversity, uh, prevention of sexual harassment, consideration of others, all the stuff that happened in 2010 when Don't Ask, Don't Tell came up and all the training we had to go through, you know, I can only speak to personal experience. Those conversations were happening when I got into the Army, you know, from the very moment I got in. I served 22 years, and I never say saw any of it have any operational impact, positive or negative, one way or another. Well, that's not even true. I mean, I've met a lot of great gay officers. I've met a lot of great minority officers. And I've also seen some of the, you know, some of the bullshit they have to put up with, you know, in their service. And I think that, you know, it's sometimes good to put your shoe you know, to walk a mile in someone else's shoes and see what's out there. And frankly, you know, diversity training, if you if you get something out of it, good for you. If you don't, move on because operationally, good order discipline in the military, it doesn't really have that much effect. And I think in that regard, you know, Colonel Lomar probably should have stopped hitting transmit, hit receive, and then just moved out with his day. And I think that in the end was what this is largely about. I, I look well said. I, I said I wasn't going to respond, and I, I'm going to stay true to that. I 
there's so much more fodder to dive into, Chris. You said it all incredibly well and incredibly articulately. And um, what you know, what I was thinking when you're talking, I was just like, I hope everything we've talked about here has given you enough fodder for a whole another slew of articles that you can churn out in, in your dwindling amounts of free time. Because uh, uh, ho- hopefully, this gave you just grist for the mill. Sure. Everything, <laughs> you know, you know. Here's the deal: is that you know. Once you stop considering the other side of the equation, even if you know to engage with the other side is not to have to, there's no obligation to agree with the other side by engaging with the other side. And I think for some people, they just lost that art, you know, and they've just stopped doing it. And in the end, you know, no, I had to think that, you know, there's some value in that. And if it caused me to write some good more articles, then hey, okay. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah. Well, no, and it's it's a huge point because I, I, I and one of the things I was hopeful today, and and this did not uh, disappoint. Uh, we did, and I don't think we disappointed each other on this front. Is that um, I can't remember if I've said this before on the podcast, but if I have, I'm repeating myself. In, in the military, I've always had my best political discussions, um, usually at a reasonable level and with people you trust enough to have these discussions. Um, and and without strangers uh, walking around who could be offended or, or butt in at the wrong time or what have you. But I have had those great discussions. And I think the reason is because everybody knew how much, I don't want to say it didn't matter, but how this, how your political beliefs didn't make you a certain kind of person. And that at the end of the day, we all had a life or death job to do. So, Hey, yeah, we can talk and we can fill our brains with interesting ideas and bullshit back and forth. But at the end of the day, we're all in the same foxhole together and we're all shooting in the same direction. And that's what's really important. And if we, you know, alleviate the tedium by talking about everybody from Bill Maher to Rousseau, so be it. But, um, but it kind of put it in its right place. And what I think to your point about people that disagree not talking with each other is now with our, you know, uh, uh, frequently reported information silos of where we get our news and in the civilian world, how, how people don't necessarily have to associate with those that they see differently. They live geographically in similar communities that tend to believe roughly the same things that they believe. They work in industries where oftentimes they're surrounded by people that believe similar things. And, uh, there's, there's that lack of connective tissue where, uh, that commonality, that unity, uh, that allows you to have sensitive conversations because you know, at the end of the day, that this is all just sound and fury signifying, if not nothing, not everything. Right. I mean, I think that there, I do think that there comes a point where you have to share a common civic regard with the person you're having a discussion with. And I think that sometimes, you know, I've been accused of being prickly with other people that I've been in conversations with, you know, and I think that's when I think, people are being civically dishonest about something. But at the end of the day, why I think that the military was a good place to have some of these dialogues was that we all kind of shared a common civic, you know, background. We all kind of subordinate ourselves to the same body of military law and to the same ethos. And that's why I think a lot of those conversations were easier to have in the military. I find them, I find that they're very hard to have on the outside now because quite frankly, you know, people get, people get very offended out here very easily and it's not just leftist. Let me tell you. I mean, no, no, not at all. No, like you yeah. know, like you, like you know, there's an entire group, entire group of right folks that 
You know, you say anything that deviates even an iota from the orthodoxy, you know, you are done. You know, and so I find that these conversations are very hard to have out here. And so that's why, you know, I enjoy my life now. It's great. I enjoy being out and everything like that. You know, it's, I mean, if I knew retirement was going to be this great, I would have did it years ago, <laughs> i.e. two years ago. But, you know, but the fact is, is that I do miss the dialogue because yeah. I felt that it was safer to have some of these conversations yeah. in the military, which given that we just talked about a guy that's getting ready to lose his command for expressing his opinion, you know, that sounds like kind of paradoxical. But no, man, you know, I had some of the greatest conversations I ever had were, you know, midnight, you know, yeah. on the jock floor, you know, where, you know, you're waiting for something to happen and, you know, helicopters are en route and it's a two hour flight time. And you're just like, all right, what are we going to do for the next two hours? You know, exactly. you can only do, you can only do the X check for so many times <laughs> before you're just like, all right, man, yeah. you want to talk about politics? Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. Let's talk about politics. Yeah. Of and those conversations were easier to have then. Not now. Yeah. Politics is the is the new religion, you know. Everybody try, especially in the civilian world, everybody seems to line up with evangelical fervor, and and it makes it hard to put politics in its right, have the right perspective about it, and, and give it the appropriate grains of salt. Um, it's funny, you know how I, I'll say this just in conclusion, but it's funny how I, I find myself more and more having that school marmish, you know, don't talk about sex, politics, or religion in polite company, you know, but you go, Oh, you know, there's a reason why they said that, you mm-hmm. know, just keep it's something, you know, it's, it's one thing. Yeah. When you're out, you know, freezing your tuckus off somewhere in the Hindu Kush, it's a little bit different, you know, when you're, uh, you know, passing the time at Starbucks or what have you. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting how that comes around. Uh, Chris. So, um, first off, I'm going to link to the article that you wrote, uh, about, uh, Matthew Lohmeyer and, uh, I encourage everybody to read it. Uh, I don't think we stole all of Chris's thunder from the article. We certainly sucked a lot of marrow out of that bone, if I can mix the metaphor, but we didn't. Uh, but there is uh, certainly give it a read because uh, there are other points that he brought up in there. Uh, Chris, I want to ask you about uh, local fire departments. Tell me about that. Yeah. Hey, this is actually my new passion is that, you know, I have part of my new civilian friend group is volunteer firefighters and, you know, kind of learning about it in my community. And what I didn't realize is that 70% of firefighters in the United States of America are volunteer firefighters. They're not professional firefighters. And this volunteer firefighters, you know, it's not a necessarily a young man's game. I mean, you have 65, 60-year-old, 55-year-old yeah. people responding to fires all across the United States at this very moment. And I kind of find that as I look for that kind of civic connective tissue out there and things that people can get involved in, in the community – I was really kind of taken with the idea of volunteer firefighting to the point where I've actually signed up for my local department and I'm supposed to find out word here within a week or two, whether I actually got in or not. I think I did. I there mean, you go. fingers crossed. Was, yeah. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Well, you know, yeah. I was kind of told like, Hey, you know, you did great. It's really, you got to wait a month until we figure it out. We'll see what happens. But you know what I didn't realize, and this is where the veteran angle comes into it is that at least in my town, the volunteer firefighting is the unofficial VFW it's full of vets, you know, yeah, and yeah. the conversations that are had with those folks are very reminiscent of the conversations that we had in the military. So, you know, we talk about, you know, the whole vet game and the whole, you know, the whole weird feeling once you're out, well, what, which team do I belong to now? Do I even belong to a team anymore? Go check out your volunteer fire department, fire department. You know, it may not be what you want to do, 
But if you're looking for, you know, the VFW that doesn't sit on their ass and drink beers all day long, but actually goes out there, operates as a team and does stuff, you could hardly go wrong by basically taking a look at your volunteer fire department. And hopefully I can be part of that team and we'll see where it goes from there. But I mean, it was something that I had no knowledge of up until about a year ago of who are these guys and, you know, surely they're firefighters, surely they're full time, nothing of the sort. Yeah. Yeah. And to your point, uh, maybe a place uh, where you can safely discuss politics when you get to know everybody. So circling back to what we, what we were talking about before, that you have that brotherhood and that trust and that greater sense of mission that allows you to discuss frivolous stuff like like uh, all of us like to talk about from time to time. Right. Chris, listen, thank you for being here today. This was awesome. Um, I appreciate it. No knock on Charlie, but uh, I, I, I find myself now um, – I can almost picture so many of his responses because he says, well, Chris, you know what? I, I, I hope whatever the issue is, I hope everybody just works it out. And I'm like, Charlie, you, you got to retire. We, we need you to get these opinions spiced up a little bit. So to have somebody to play tennis with on this issue, Chris, it, it meant a lot. And I really appreciate it. Okay. Well, hey, thanks. And this was great. Enjoy the conversation and hope to be on again sometime. I would love it. I would love it. And hopefully sooner than later. And uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. A pleasure to have you on. Everybody else. If you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you're on iTunes, we love feedback. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. He has a right to criticize who has a heart to help. Whatever you want to say, we're open to hearing it. If you could attach a five-star review to whatever your comments are, whether or not they are five-star worthy, I would deeply appreciate it because the metrics do matter. Show notes. Chris and I talked about a bunch of things. I will try to do my due diligence and go through the audio and pull links for things that might not be clear, things you might want to read more about, things we may have mentioned in passing. Those show notes will be at theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com. Again, theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com. Also, on Wednesdays, it's Wednesdays? No, Tuesdays. On Tuesdays, when we publish these episodes, uh, I will have a support article, which will have the show notes in it. They'll get published in Havoc Journal. So you can read those there as well. Also, as part of that article and just below the show notes, if you want to keep scrolling uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast, you will see the show alibis for anything I misstated. Also, for anything our guests may have misstated, if they can think of something that wakes them up at two in the morning in a cold sweat going, why did I say it like that? Or this is what I meant to say, or geez, that came off badly. Uh, that's our chance to kind of make good on all that stuff. Generally, the guests don't take me up on this because usually I'm the only one that says anything uh, that backwards that needs to be kind of clarified and contextualized. So the show, the show alibis will be there as well. So please check them out. It's always, uh, we try to put a couple of jokes in there occasionally, and some of them aren't even dad jokes, so they might actually make you laugh. As always, thank you to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Chris Otero, and we'll see you next time for the Weekly Havoc. Sorry, by the way, thanks a million for coming on late. I'm sorry we got a late start on this. I had a uh, barbecue-related emergency today, which... Uh, right, <laughs> the, be- the best kind. It is the best kind. My right. uh, Some parents at my kids' school wanted to have my wife and I over for a barbecue, and I tried to get out of it, which caused all sorts of marital distress. So I ended up going, and of course, was late getting back.
Um, yeah. So I'm doing a little bit of housekeeping that I should have done ahead of time. 